From Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, presented by Stuart Elford. With special guests, William Telford, business editor for Plymouth Live. I've met members of the royal family, prime ministers. I went with the army to Northern Ireland when the troubles were on. That was fascinating. And Mark Truwin, chief digital transformation officer at City College Plymouth, with Jamie Farnell-Smith, executive chair of C-Learning and director of Delling Cloud. It's not just a badge. It's not like just getting some award or something like that. It's actually recognition from one of the world's top, most successful companies. Hello there and welcome to another edition of the Chamber of Commerce podcast, Devon and Plymouth's In Conversation With. My name's Stuart Elford, I'm the Chief Executive and we have a podcast that's split into two halves. The first half is Chamber Chat where we speak to interesting and prominent figures from around the county and region and the second half Chamber Made where we speak to Chamber members about their businesses and find out a bit more about them. And today I'm joined by someone who's used to actually asking the questions rather than answering them because I'm delighted so I'm joined by William Telford, who's the business editor for Plymouth Live. Hello, William. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me on. No, it's welcome. Now, I call you William, or should I call you B-Boy Biz? That's my alter ego, so That's you can call ego. me that, yeah, but you have to say it in street talk, if you... Oh, go on then. How should I do it? <laughs> we just got to say I'm well dope. You're well dope, are you? <laughs> yeah. And this relates to you being a hip-hopping street dancer. Yeah, a breaker, yeah. A breaker, you yeah. are. So tell us, yeah. what was all that about? Well, Toby G, Toby Gorniak, threw down the gauntlet to me about three years ago. Could I learn in a month to do some breaking right you should say breaking not break dancing by okay, the way breaking. breaking i knew that i'm down in the street with the kids yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, i had an intensive month of training and lessons with him and at the end of that i had to do a performance in front of about 100 people like Uh-oh. a two or three minute routine yeah. which was arguably the most terrifying thing i've ever done in my life <laughs> and i've done some crazy things especially through journalism yeah i bet well we'll yeah. come on to a few of those in yeah. a minute but yeah and it went well well nobody threw anything at me so that together that was a positive and i didn't injure myself I was too badly say you didn't break anything no. by breaking no no luckily that was my biggest fear that i'd end up in hospital rather than solving the hall of fame of breakers yeah it went okay it was good fun and i continued it for quite a while until kind of the lockdown hit and then everything stopped you know i wouldn't mind getting back into it but i'm gonna have to get my fitness back (laughs) too many long hours yes let's not go there too many hours sitting at the kitchen table eating biscuits when i should have been working (laughs) well you're looking good and bearing in mind this is an audio podcast i can tell everyone that actually i'm 11 stone and as fit as a flea which of course is not true but anyway there we go but this is a bit of a turn for you because you're actually a punk rocker aren't you secretly well well, yeah, I mean, not so well, yes, I do like that sort of music. Depends what you consider punk, really, I suppose. But The Clash is The Clash is my favourite band, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and from really when I was about 16. That's about the age when you get into it, I think. Yeah. Pete Townsend said that. You always stay with the music that you get into when you're 15 or 16. Yeah, I get it. I suppose what I've been listening to at that stage... Well, I still have a bit of a soft spot for some of the old heavy rock, actually, heavy metal. Yeah. Yeah, if ACDC Back in Black comes on, I can still <laughs> sing the whole lot. Well, I say sing, yeah. squawk the whole thing. I can't actually sing. It is a good record, though. That's a brilliant album, that as well. Oh, it's superb, yeah. isn't it? I still love a bit of that. The trouble is, you can't listen to it in the car because, firstly, you have to listen to it at full volume. You can't listen to Back in Black on a low volume. But secondly, it does make you drive faster and you can do without accidents. <laughs> they do say that. The speed of the music you're listening to affects your driving. Yeah. Turns into an aggressive yeah. rocker, yeah. You mentioned Toby G, Toby Gorniak, who's a great asset to the city. What a lovely guy. And I must tell you, I met him relatively recently at a business dinner that was raising money for the Kiam tragedy victims. And he had a couple of young dancers on there. And I guess these girls are about 11. And they said they were going to do this street dance, this composition of their own. And I will admit, inside I'm thinking, hip-hop, street dance, not really my thing. I'm not really into that but I'll put on a polite face and then these girls came on and danced this dance and I cried it was one of the most beautiful things I'd seen it was just so powerful it was brilliant you know well that's the thing with dancing isn't it that it's the interpretation yeah the respect I've got for dancers of all types after having a go at it myself is immense now because the fitness 
for a start, you know, yeah. has to be really high. Yeah. They're like sportsmen. Yeah, well, they are. They're athletes. Hugely high level of fitness, but also it's the mental strength in it as well. Yeah. You're constantly thinking, what's the next move? And it's good for your mind and body and soul. Yeah. I've got to say, whatever level you're at, something you should give a go, really. So are we going to see William Telford on Strictly? <laughs> I don't think I'm famous enough for them ever to invite me. <laughs> I you know, it would be interesting to learn some of those dance because that's the interesting thing. When you talk to some of the people who are doing the breaking and that and the pop-in, as, those as well, you find out some of them have done other types of dancing as well. Right. And they can bring, like, moves in from mm. them, you know, and sort of mix it up a bit, you know, and you sort of learn from different types of dance. Yeah. It's very interesting, yeah. So what do you bring in from punk? They did the pogo, didn't they? Just bouncing up and down. Yeah, Sid Vicious supposedly invented it. It was supposedly the anti-dance. Was it? For it people who couldn't dance, you just jumped up and down. That would be me. I mean, headbanging, perhaps that's why I'm as mad as I am always years of fresh yeah. I haven't got the hair to thrash around anymore yeah uh, I've seen some spectacular head banging in my time I've not someone I've tried I don't know how they did it without giving themselves permanent brain damage but there's bands and fans who did it mm. and quite spectacularly as well yeah I didn't ask are you a Plymouthian are you from this part of the world yeah. I'm not from Plymouth no but I have lived here now longer than I've lived anywhere else so what brought you to our big bad city I was born in London my parents moved to Cornwall and then I went back to London to university and that and then you know moved about a bit and then came back down to the southwest and Plymouth was where the jobs were and it was where the biggest city so that's how I kind of ended up here yeah and what was the first job because you did a degree you got a bachelor of laws from the LSE haven't you that's right I did law at the LSE I never really wanted to be a lawyer though after graduating I was a bit stuck what was I going to do but I was always interested in writing mm. and I wanted to be a writer really and then somebody said to me one day you should try journalism that's a great way to get into writing okay and it is actually and have you got into writing yet <laughs> well I do write yeah, yeah. I've had several short stories published had a collection of short stories published yeah. there's actually quite a vibrant writing scene oh right okay yeah and it's just really getting going again now after lockdown so there's a lot of events I was at an open mic event at the Leadworks not far from here in Rendell Street mm. really good some very well established writers there but also a lot of new people came mm. I think it's a good venue that because it's in a good part accessible part of the city I'd like to join you I mean I've yeah. always fancied writing obviously all of us write in some way or another but when i do articles for our magazine i really love it i really enjoy it and i've always thought i guess everyone thinks they've got a book in them but i kind of do so drag me along yeah. and have you thought about the novel is there a big war and peace i have written a novel yeah i sort of put it to one side for a bit and went back into short stories but i did send off to a few agents it's a difficult world really publishing novels at the moment because you've got to be very genre based mm. what they're looking for is mostly crime women's fiction romance these sort of things right. if you don't fall into a neat package it's very difficult for them to market you yeah so what's your very niche niche then well, what was your novel it was more sort of literary i mean when you say literary people think of like high literature <laughs> yeah. yeah but it basically literally can be anything that's not genre really mm. but it was humorous really Strangely, I was just thinking about it today because I was writing about something else. And by chance, I came across an independent publisher and I thought, oh, there's a lot of small independent publishers. I should maybe go for that. Mm. You know, so I did think, oh, perhaps I'll restart sending it out again this year. Mm. Writers always go to the biggest agents, first yeah. of all, because they're the people with the clout. Yeah, they want that instant win. Yeah, who can maybe sell it for a six-figure fee to some big publishing house and get a TV deal or whatever. Very few will get that. But there's a lot of very small independent publishers, some of them really good. Mm. So it's worth, you know, looking around at that. So watch this space. I but could it... be interviewing the, <laughs> the next big thing in writing. Well, yeah, I've got to do more writing again, though. That's the thing. It's uh, Lockdown wasn't great for a lot of the writers. A lot of us stopped. You would think that's when you would, though, wouldn't you, when there's time? It's odd because some went the opposite way and have written loads of yeah. things. Some of the poets and some of the fiction writers, they've written masses during lockdown. I don't know if it was maybe because working from home, mm. there wasn't that cutoff between finishing one type of work and starting another one, if you know what I mean. Mm. Did you know I'm a published poet? I didn't, no. No, I have written a poem and it was published. Brilliant. I have to just clarify, and not that I'm belittling it at all, but it was the Evening Herald that published it. <laughs> Many years ago, you had a poetry competition. I'd written this really short poem and I submitted it under a false name and I put it under a false name because at the time I think I'd just left being a media officer for the police and I didn't want that sort of connection with me so I just stuck it in under my pseudonym of Edward Guest which is Mr. E. Guest, Mystery Guest <laughs> they didn't pick up on that and away we went and I was published yes, Rain is Romantic, I'm sure it's online somewhere oh, you could look it up. That's yeah. wonderful, I'm going to look for that you have to come to one of the open mic nights Yeah, I'd love to. I'll let you know when the next one is I can recite my poem maybe. You can read it, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I won't read it now because 
I'm too embarrassed. And funny enough, you talked about writing, but you're also, I understand, an avid reader. And in fact, I'm told that you even bump into people on the way to work because you're <laughs> reading a book as you walk. It's the only way I get through so many books, yeah. Well, you have to read a lot if you want to be a writer. Yeah. People will often say you should read a book a week. Mm. It doesn't have to be a long book. <laughs> it can be a yeah. short book because it's like any job, really. You know, you have to know what other people are doing yeah. and you have to have, like, inspiration, don't you? Mm. So, yeah, I do try to read. Probably don't get through as much as a book a week, but I think I did 40 last year. That's pretty good. It's not pretty bad. Good. It's not my best year. And what was the last book you read? The last book I finished <laughs> was Elena Ferranti's The Lost Daughter, which I've just filmed, actually. It was on Netflix, right. which was excellent. But I've started reading another one of hers. I've actually got about three or four books on the go at the moment. Ah. I usually have a couple of non-fiction ones going that oh, you can I dip into. That. You know, if I start a book, I've got to start it, finish it. I couldn't start and stop. I think with novels, you have to do that because you, you literally lose, lose the plot. The plot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I dip into non-fiction books as well. So what sort of thing? I'm reading a book at the moment about history of football in Africa, which I got given for Christmas, which is really fascinating. Almost like a history of Africa as well. Yeah. And actually, I'm reading a book about the clash as well. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Yeah. You've obviously got one of those brains that's either very organised or very disorganised. I suspect I know which because I'm told that your desk is quite an interesting collection of old newspapers. Well, and, <laughs> yeah, not the tidiest in the world. It was, yeah. I was a bit notorious for having the most untidy desk in the newsroom which I'm not allowed to do now because now I'm operating from my house. <laughs> yeah, so someone else has a say in that, So, they? yes, I have to be tidier now. I'm not saying it's tidy, it's just tidier. <laughs> tidier. Yeah, well, yeah. that's a start. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm one of those other end of the scale sort of almost anal people who needs it just so. I do need to know where everything is and have it all laid out. It's probably a psychiatrist would have a field day telling me what's wrong with me. You know, they could do a whole conference on that, <laughs> I'm sure. The other thing I heard about you, and this is interesting, I didn't know such a thing existed. Well, I knew that being a vegan existed, and you're a vegan. That's right, yes. And I'm surprised you haven't told me, as the joke goes, that (laughs) we've been in the interview for 15 minutes and you haven't mentioned it yet. I thought I'd tell everyone by now. Oh, right. But you have vegan shoes. I didn't know you could do it. I do. I'm wearing the pair at the moment, yeah. They look like a perfectly normal pair of DMs. They are. They're vegan Dr. Martins, yeah. So they're not leather, is it? The vegan bit? No, they're made out of vinyl, yeah. Oh, they look like... They are. They're really good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lots of pairs, yeah. How long have you been a vegan? I've been fully vegan now for about more than five years. Right. But I was vegetarian since I've been a teenager. Oh, right. So not such a hard transition. Yeah, and I hadn't really drunk much milk and cheese for about probably more than 10 years now. So there wasn't a lot to give up to right. go fully vegan. <laughs> but my daughters went vegan, fully vegan. And then I thought, well, you know, you know, I might as well all go, you know. Yeah, I guess I'd be a lazy vegetarian in the sense that I quite like some of the vegetarian food. I'm not obsessed with meat, but I would struggle to become vegan because I love milk, cheese, dairy products generally. So I think yeah. I would struggle to go the whole hog, so to speak. Yeah. Well, not the whole hog. <laughs> yeah, that's a very bad choice of phrase. I am sorry. <laughs> it's probably one of those things where you try not to say something and all the wrong things come into well, your head. People ask me about it and I say, you know, do it in stages. Or try like having, you know, meat-free Mondays and yeah, yeah. dairy-free days and things like that. For some people, I think giving up dairy is good for your sinuses and your chest and that. I always suffered from problems with that and with asthma and I'd never really connected it until a doctor said to me well have you thought about giving up you know dairy products about so about 10 years ago Mm. and I thought no I hadn't really and so I started cutting down then Mm. and since I've cut it out totally you know my breathing is a lot better okay it did really changed me but that's me you know not everybody is like that but there are people who have troubles you know with breathing Mm. and being sort of snotty and coughing and you know Mm. wheezing and that and i do say to them try it just it might be that just it might not be but try giving up dairy for a week or two and see if that clears it you know my doctor suggested some years ago that i cut down on the amount of caffeine i had Mm. because i just realized i was drinking a lot of tea and coffee and and stuff as we do you kind of drink more and more and you don't even notice it so me being me instead of cutting down i just thought well i'll stop for a month so i just didn't have any caffeine for a month for the first week to 10 days i had a splitting headache which just was awful and then it gradually got better and then i felt better and it was all fine and then at the end of the month i thought i'll have a cup of tea just a normal cup of tea and i felt the caffeine rush through my veins it was weird because we get so attuned and so used to it that you don't realise it's a drug. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Oh, it was the most bizarre feeling, having a tea and then feeling it kind of rushing through my body. So goodness knows what it's doing to us when we have a lot of it all the time. <laughs> I know, you do notice things. If you give something up and then go back to it, you then notice the impact it has yeah. on you. Yeah, that is really interesting because then you think, like you were saying, I've got used to that. My body's yeah. got used to that. It's not all the time. What has it done to me, you know? I just want to talk about your journalism. So when did you 
come to Plymouth? That was to be a journalist, was it? Yeah, I came and I worked for the Sunday Independent when yeah, it was here. Yeah, the Indy. Yeah. So that was almost 30 years ago. Right. 30 years ago this year, I started there. Yeah, it was up at Burrington Way then. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. It was quite a ramshackle building yeah. with presses. It was interesting because at that time, Plymouth had three newspapers all being published in the city that yeah. day because the Morning News and the Herald, obviously, yeah, yeah. as well. I mean, phenomenal, really. Not many cities around the country could do no. that. But it was good, yeah. I had some good fun on the paper there. And then moved from there to the Herald nearly 25 years ago. And were you a sort of general journalist? You didn't have a special, you went sports or... No, I started in news. I did think about sport when I first started, but there wasn't many openings there. So I did some freelance stuff before that mm. and I got into news. And news is actually really interesting mm. because it covers everything, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, and, you know, I love news. And then I moved into business about... 12 years ago something like that and are you enjoying that because that probably doesn't yeah. have quite the sort of hard-hitting journalistic reaction to an event or a big story true yeah no sometimes you do feel a bit envious you know you see big news stories happen but i think on a general day-to-day basis i do really love doing business journalism mm. because business is so interesting yeah and it is quite challenging actually as well <laughs> yes especially lately it is yeah and it does cover it moves beyond just being about business it's people yeah and people said to me how's it been during the covid period and I said it's been really busy it's probably been the busiest time in my career and I said I'm really worried when they locked us all down and that mm. we could have anything to write about it was the opposite there's so, so much, much. because the fact that nothing happened was something that happened if you know yes. what I mean well business you know, had to adapt improvise yeah. overcome that you know everyone was affected ways to do yeah it. every single business when I first started covering business it was during the recession of 2009 mm. and that was a really interesting time because again every business was affected by the recession mm. not always negatively some people did yeah. well and we've seen this with covid some companies have done remarkably well yes powell ilfracombe that rishi sunak visited yeah i'd written about them just before christmas because they were expanding so fast because they're in the vaccine business yeah well i think a lot of businesses that adapted quickly or who had already embraced digital ways of working actually did very well and i feel for those that didn't and as a chamber we've tried to help very much we've got a program at the moment to help businesses go digital because of that but you're right many businesses did really well out of it yeah and i think that's the thing with business you know when it's your livelihood when it's survival you have to adapt it forces creativity and innovation and different ways of thinking and doing things yeah not all of them bad i mean you know i had said when i became chief executive of the chamber that we should stream our events we should do them live but to be honest it was in the too difficult to do box we didn't have the technology how do you do that oh, i don't really know and well we'll do that next month or next month or next month pandemic hits and overnight i'm the world's expert in zoom <laughs> and we've taken our events online and now they're hybrid so if people want to come and have a bacon butty in the networking bit they can but if they want the content of the event from the comfort of their office or home then they can come to that too still to come mark truin chief digital transformation officer at city college plymouth with jamie farnell smith executive chair of c learning and director of delling cloud what google's very good at is making your intuition follow the next thing you want to tackle because their approach to use their technology is very consistent Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. So great yeah. to see all that adapting. And you must have seen some great stories recently of businesses adapting, changing, thriving. There's been a lot who've adapted and done well. There's been a lot who've done well because they've suddenly found a new market mm. or created new products, mm. you know. And there's companies that have just ploughed ahead mm. doing what they were always doing and just, all right, we'll cope with this and we'll just continue mm. operating. Mm. But yeah, it has been. I did a talk with one of the lecturers at the university a couple of months ago and it was based on the theme of like the, the sort of the disaster that didn't happen. Mm. And there was a real feeling nearly two years ago that we were maybe going to plunge into a 1930s style depression. Mm. Yeah, and I remember. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. There's a lot of reasons. And, you know, the, the government support and that was a big factor. But yep. a lot of companies now are in quite a strong position and they're mm. bouncing back. They've bounced back very quickly. Yes. Before the Omicron variant, the British Chambers of Commerce Quarterly Economic Survey showed that the November QES showed that the economic recovery had taken us to pre-pandemic levels back then. Now, Omicron has given that a little 
hit downwards. But I think there's a lot of pent-up energy and demand and enthusiasm, and I think we're ready for a surge. Yeah, I think so. And I think they have bounced back very quickly. I think there was a bit of fear about Omicron, wasn't it, before mm. Christmas, that it was going to pitch us back again. That doesn't seem to be happening. No. And I think also companies have got used to the safe ways of working that they brought in. They've kept those and they've learned to work around things. You're a newspaper man at heart. How do you feel about the changing face of journalism, about the online stuff, about, I suppose, missing that print deadline? You know, how has it changed in your time? It's changed enormously. I mean, I'm a digital first journalist now mm. and people always say, you know, who do you work for? At one time, I worked for the Evening Herald That's right. when I joined yeah, them. Yeah. And our sworn rivals were the Western Morning News. And now, today, it's totally common now for me to write a piece of copy which will go on to Reach's National Business Live website yeah. and then onto Plymouth Live and then quite possibly onto Devon Live or even mm. Cornwall Live and into the Herald mm. and into the Western Morning News mm. and potentially into any number of weekly papers depending on the angle and where the story's based and that. So I could see one story in five or six different publications effectively mm. all part of the same reach plc group mm. um, that's a huge change from when we didn't even talk to another newspaper yeah. in our own company mm. so is it a good change yes it is because it's given us a much wider audience and mm. what we found is that the audiences for those different publications they cross over a bit but they don't cross over totally mm. so the people who are reading a story on plymouth live aren't necessarily the people who are reading it on business live mm. and they're not necessarily the people who are reading it in print mm. which might have an old Older demographic, mm. you know, and I'll still get, you know, stopped by people who say, I read your stuff, where do you read it? I read it in the Herald. Did you see it anywhere else? Oh, no, because I don't go online. Or the other way around, you know, mm. oh, yeah, I saw that story on Plymouth Live, or, you know, oh, I saw a great story on Business Live you wrote, you know, mm. because people are picking and choosing which platform's best for them. Yeah. So that's given us a lot bigger spread and also a global spread. Mm. You know, I'll write about companies and then I've had people come to me and say, do you know, because of that story, we've picked up some business in wherever, Glasgow, America even, mm. you know. Because of the search engines yeah. and how people have found it. Yeah. yeah. And how do you feel about the sort of changing face in terms of the sort of clickbait and the stories that aren't, if you like, that just intended to drive people to click on it? Old school journalists like me, we're not that happy about the way it's gone in a way mm. although i always say to people that most of those stories we would have covered in print but we wouldn't have covered them in the same way right. you know we used to have things nibs news in briefs news in brief i remember yeah and you'd get little things in there you know it'd be two paragraphs but some of those things now or like a funny picture story of just mm. a caption those things have been sort of pushed up and they can be like the thing that's leading the web page mm. for whatever publication mm. and then people go oh you're only interested in daft news and clickbait and that and you think well those things ended up in publications anyway but you didn't think about it because they were next to a big important story for instance mm. yeah mm. so it's prominent more than what we're covering mm. the other thing is that you kind of get the audience that's out there and there's a lot of push to do stories about celebrities online generally. Mm. But people are interested in them. This is the thing, you know. Amazingly. Yeah. And sometimes it's celebrities you think, well... I'm not interested in it, but somebody else is. Isn't that kind of self-sustaining, though? Because I see that we push sometimes, or I've seen pushed, stories about someone, and it's on a local platform. And when you click on it, you realise there's no connection to a local story. It's just a way of getting people to click on that. I think celebrity news is a big thing. And mm. whether it's the right way to do it, to put it onto news sites, or maybe they should be separate celebrity sites or TV sites, I don't know, you know. Mm. I'm a little bit lucky that I'm sort of kept away from that because because businesses we've got our own niche yeah. and we've got our own place for it to go so you're just telling the stories as they are and yeah. what happens to it kind of is not irrelevant but it's not your part of the jigsaw it's true yeah I mean we're not immune to needing clicks and needing people to read it mm. but we're kind of also looking for a different audience you know an audience that's perhaps a bit more engaged the people who read a business story will probably be people who are, they're interested in that. Mm. They're not just casually flicking around and seeing what's mm. there. And that's what you get sometimes into the sort of celebrity type. Sort mm. of, depends what you define by clickbait, really. Yeah. Because some people say it's clickbait. Well, is it clickbait because it's popular? Mm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean? Or is it clickbait because it's nonsense? Yeah. But a lot of the stories that people say are clickbait, they're actually, they're real stories. Yeah. They're just about different things. Popular it's always things. always been yeah. the same, hasn't it? Tabloid, newspapers, you know, were read by a lot of people. So somebody was buying them, whether you like what they're reporting or not. So I have to kind of sometimes take issue with the word celebrity because I don't know about you, but I see these celebrity shows on TV yeah. and I think, well, they're such celebrities, <laughs> I've never heard of them. But that's just probably showing what an old fart I am. I saw a list of dancing on ice, which I've never watched. 
But I look, it was actually a business story. Somebody said, and I looked down the list of who was in it. I didn't know any of them. No, <laughs> thought, it might be us showing our age. Let's move on yeah. very quickly. So what was the most fun you've had with journalists? Is there a story you're really proud of? You went, yeah, that was great. I got that one and it got good coverage and oh. I enjoyed writing it or I got a scoop or what some highlights from your time? Well, it's um, it's been interesting. It, you know, it's always hard to put your finger on one thing. Mm. I mean, I've done some amazing things, you know, especially in the early days when I was doing news. You know, I met a lot of well-known people, some quite powerful people as well you know I met members of the royal family prime ministers I went with the army to Northern Ireland when the troubles were on wow that was fascinating eye-opening I should think it was yeah it was really interesting it was yeah because the troubles were full on it was the early 90s and it was very weird to be in a British city where you couldn't actually do anything if you know what I mean Mm. I had to be under the protection of the army all the time. Mm. I couldn't go off and wander off on my own. Go into a pub and have a chat. Yeah, you couldn't do it. Yeah. And it was really strange. Yeah. And I had to be like met by plainclothes soldiers at the airport who had guns. Like out of a film, they're wearing their civvies, but they had like holsters with yeah. guys. <laughs> you're just thinking, but this is in Great Britain, the yeah. United Kingdom, you yeah. know. But I also, with the Navy, I went to the war in the Balkans about the same time. And that was fascinating when Serbia and yeah, yeah. Kosovo and all that was yeah. happening. Yeah. So I spent about a week on a warship there. So that was really interesting. So I had a lot of interesting times. Stories, oh, man, oh, it's hard to know. I mean, sadly, a lot of the things that you stick in your mind are really particularly with news, are quite sad, murders, this sort of Mm. thing. We had a lot of high-profile cases like that I did, sometimes the court cases as well. But I've done, you know, business is fascinating. Like I say, you don't get the big stories in that sense, but you get a lot of really interesting ones. Yeah, interesting, and often positive. There's a lot more positive news in business than negative. You get the odd, a business has gone under, or, you know, loads of people may be redundant, which is awful, but there's also a lot of really good news stories, aren't there? It is, yeah. It, It almost works the other way around that news is predominantly about bad news and i asked a psychologist that once what does bad news sell and he said it's because people have tough lives and they want to come in at the end of the day and they want to put the news on or pick up a newspaper or look at a website and go mm. i've had a terrible day but at least that hasn't happened to me yeah and that so. psychologically is kind of what's Other going people on people have difficult things yeah. Which yeah. is why I suppose life could be worse. The flip side in social media for young people is that you know the joke is if only everyone's life was as good as it looks on social media. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but for young people, when they see these images all the time of perfect bodies, perfect look, yeah, perfect in every way, and you have to have so many friends, and oh, that person's got three hundred friends more than I have. Of course, they're not real friends; they're contacts. Yeah. At that age, you can't see that. That is probably the reverse cycle. It can make them feel inadequate. Yeah. Exactly. As opposed to us in our, they would look at bad news as you say and think, well, thank God that's not me i mean to this day because of my time in the police service if i look at an air ambulance fly by or even a road ambulance going by with its blue light on i always think someone's having a worse day than i am yeah you know however bad your day is you're not in the back of that ambulance or at the other end of it you know it was business journalism works the other way around and a businessman once said to me he went it's all about confidence and about positivity that's the best stories and he said i love reading your stories because you know that most of them are positive and somebody's doing something good Mm. and i said yeah and what do you get out of that and he said well I want to know who's doing well, why they're doing well, and can I get involved with them? (laughs) Yes, can I do it? You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, positivity is infectious. I think talking to anybody who's passionate about their subject is inspiring. It doesn't matter what the subject is. You can be passionate about anything. But if you're passionate about it, you're inspiring. And I think that's great. Yeah. I've been lucky because what has been a shame during the lockdown, I don't want to get back into the lockdown, mm-hmm. is that we couldn't go out and visit people. We said, yeah. how did it change your job? And I said, the, the saddest thing is I didn't get out to meet people. No. You know, I love going out and interviewing people and meeting people. But also the trips to visit factories, building sites, things like mm. that, and see how people actually do stuff. Yeah, yeah. Going around the sort of like the Babcock yeah. or Princess Yachts, someone like that, and actually seeing what they do yeah. is fascinating. Or some of the other factories we've got, or you know, some of the building sites. Mm. You know, I mean, I was on the roof of a building they're building not far from where we are now at Mount Wise, yes. one they I was able to go to last summer. Yeah, you know, and actually get up on the roof of a block of flats that's being built and see what they're doing up there yeah. and see the view. Yeah. And that, you know, these are the things you think, you know, you're privileged to be, as a journalist. You get a chance to look into those little bits of life yeah. that usually only a few people who are involved in that get to do. Ordinary people don't So you're naturally get to do inquisitive, that. it seems. You have to be, yeah. Yeah. You can't be a journalist and not go... Why is that happening? You know, you've got to know why everything's happening. Who's doing it? What's well, going on? Funny you should say that. I tell everybody that one of the biggest lessons I learned: the most important question is why, not what's happened or how it happened or who. 
it's why did it happen and you know if you think about police service people's motive for something why would somebody do that then you're on the right track and i think it is the powerful question why do we do it should we do that you know that's the follow-on just because we've always done it doesn't mean we should do it that way yeah no i think it's a very very powerful question and speaking of writing is there a journalist or author that you really admire i often talk about journalists who become authors mm. a lot of the greatest writers were newspaper reporters right. ernest hemingway yeah, was a newspaper yeah, yeah, reporter right. he said the greatest advice i can ever give any writer is look at the kansas city star style guide which I have a copy of on my right. computer. We used to have style guides in newspapers. We yeah. had a Herald one. Yeah. It's all like basically how you write, mm. you know, what words you should use and abbreviations and all that. And the Kansas City one is quite short and it's just really good, you know, senses, how to cut out, waffle, get mm. to the point of everything. So that's great. But Tom Wolfe, who wrote The Right Stuff, I read that last year, brilliant book. He was actually offered a job. He did so well at university, they offered him a job in academia. Mm. And he turned it down and said, no, because I want to become a newspaper reporter because I want that grounding for my writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got a lot to draw from. If you've been in news, not only have you written a lot and quickly often, but you've got such an immense amount of things you've seen and done to draw from. You learned that there was a screenwriter who'd been a newspaper reporter in America and he once said, he goes, I was stuck for what was I going to do? And I remembered as a reporter, I'd covered a siege in a house where a man had a woman in his house and all the police were outside. And he said, I basically got my notes out wrote that up and sold it for two hundred thousand dollars as a film script yeah and it's that thing you know the things you get like we're saying you know the slices of life that you get to see that other people don't see it's great because yeah you see life but also it hones your writing Mm. you know and it helps your writing it's that brevity the sort of punchiness the use of words you know the flow of sentences all these things you get them from writing quickly under pressure mm. online you don't have the word count that you used to have in stories but subs always going it's got to be 350 words or 450 words and yeah. you had to tell every story in that little nugget yeah. you know yeah that's the hard thing isn't it there's a famous tale about someone who started a letter saying forgive me for this long letter but i haven't got time to write a short one <laughs> because it's actually much harder to get everything you want it to is. say in a short piece of work anyone can waffle on for ages it's probably sacrilege to say but i struggled at school i loved english literature but i struggled with authors like dickens and hardy who i felt just took forever to get to the point you know i just thought you know just come out with it i love punchy writing things where someone can express something in such a little turn you know just one little phrase i think of songwriters like paul simon and he wrote about divorce and he says you take two bodies you twirl them into one and they won't come undone you think that's brilliant. Yeah. That is absolutely brilliant. And I wish I could sum things up in such a beautiful, yeah. pithy way. Well, that's getting into poetry. And yeah, because some poets, they accuse fiction writers of being typists <laughs> because they're always writing. Yeah. Whereas a poem can sometimes say something or a song yeah, lyric, yeah. in a few words, what sometimes even a really good fiction writer will take pages to do, you know. Yeah, exactly that. If you can sum up a whole emotion in just a phrase, another one of his, funny enough, similarly about divorce and losing love, he says, losing love is like a window in your heart everybody sees you're blown apart and mm. i remember thinking that's exactly what it's like you know isn't that fantastic well one day we can be famous millionaire writers we'll <laughs> sit on our super yacht and talk about this yeah you? that'd be and great just before we wrap up because i could talk to you for i was gonna say hours days i think because we've got a particularly business audience and you are the business editor if you had a bit of advice for businesses who are thinking i want to get my story out there what should they do well you can contact me i'm always willing to listen to anyone email me at william.telford at reachplc.com but also you know get our business live daily newsletter yeah i get it yeah. what was it i think it's eight stories every day yeah. into your new box and it's the best eight stories in the southwest mm. written by myself and my colleagues and every one of them has contacts on it mm. but yeah i'm looking to hear from anybody really let me know from any business from sole traders up to multinationals mm. from dog groomers to what's construction going to pique firms your interest because you'll get a lot of contacts and a lot of emails and a lot of press releases what's going to make you go ah oh, that's one i want to cover i like business where there's a personality involved but i also like people who are doing something that's different as mm. well but also people who are just doing really well mm. you know like i said it's positivity yeah. so 
I do like hearing from companies I've never heard of. And people yeah. always say to me, you've been doing this now more than 10 years. You must know every company in Plymouth. And I go, you'd be amazed. Every yeah. week, somebody comes along I hear of that I've never heard of before. Yeah. And they're doing really well because there's so many good companies flying under the radar. There was one actually just in Saltash, a mountain biking company. Yeah. who've got a load of investment. They've been doing really well. They've been going for about 16 years, I think it was, something. And I thought, how come I've never come across them before? Yeah. Exporting all around, and they're going to Europe, all over the UK now with yeah. these bikes. Really good. Yeah, I think it's because, firstly, there are so many. 44,000 VAT-registered businesses in Devon, so you can't see them all. But also there's new business births and mergers and changes and new products and new services. And I love it. I love going to visit businesses. I wish I could do it more in my job. I'm lucky I do. But, you know, seeing what people do, especially like you say when there's a person especially what I really love is when someone has been in a job they've either hated or has treated them bad or they've been down on their luck and they've gone right I'm going to do this for myself and they've gone out there and they've cracked it and I really admire yeah. them I think good for you I do I know he's talking about why it's the most important yeah. thing you ask some of these companies well you know how did he start why did he start doing this and it's often one person had an idea yeah and they often just go well you know what i was always interested in mountain biking and then i thought i can't get this and what do i start and it's just ballooned and grown and you know and it is fascinating and those people are really interesting yeah absolutely because they're driven and they're passionate as we said yeah. uh, look and like i said i could talk to you for hours sadly i can't thank you for your support for business community it really is appreciated genuinely because it is the lifeblood of our economy thank you for joining us absolutely fascinating william telford thank you thank you now, Chambermaid, introducing business owners from across the Southwest. Hello there and welcome back to the Chamber podcast in conversation with and in the second half of our show this is the Chamber Made M-A-D-E not M-A-I-D where we speak to Chamber members about what they've been up to about all the developments all the exciting things going on and we've got a sort of strange double header today which you'll find out in a minute I've never done this before we've got one person on Zoom and one in the studio the person we have in the studio is Mark Trewin who is Chief Digital Transformation Officer at City College Plymouth hello Mark hey Stuart good to meet you yeah thanks for coming into the studio and having a chat. So I understand City College Plymouth has become a Google college. Why? What does that mean? That's a great question. Google Reference College is an accolade that Google have bestowed upon the college. They don't just go and do that to colleges randomly. You have to apply for it. You have to demonstrate a whole series of everything from leadership, behaviours, application of technology, looking at things like sustainability, how you apply that to teaching and learning, or as we call it in the business, pedagogy. And then the application of all of that stuff and the impact it has on the important people, which is for us, our students and our community. And that's, I guess, using a lot of Google technology. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, there's probably a myth about Google technology that it's different to other technologies. It's different in that it's mostly cloud-based. There's hardware involved as well. We have a lot of Chromebooks and those devices, which our students absolutely love. And they're an alternative to a laptop or a PC, but Mm. we have PCs and Macs as well. But I guess the thing about Google technology, it's very, very translatable in the current digital skills market. So if you're very good at using Google technology, you're a very good technologist. If you can code, for example, in Google, your career in coding will be enhanced as being able to do such a thing. And the transferability between other popular platforms that offer similar products, it's very straightforward. So the Google ecosystem for us and the big why, even before the reference college bit, it provided us with what we deem to be the best, most agile platform for teaching and learning. Like other products, it's got a range of facilities where you can type documents and use spreadsheets and do things like slideshows and, you know, the other products kind of names that kind of goes with that. But it's got other things that make it really sing for us, which is it's got a classroom environment. It's got a way of building online communities, all of the kind of online digital meet features and chat facilities, all of the stuff that you see in contemporary digital practice is available to all of our students and staff. And that gave us a really unified way of looking at digital technology, if that makes sense. Mm. And we wanted a platform that gave us the best possible security, because, as you know, cybersecurity top of everyone's agenda hot topic yeah and it's a very hot topic and globally at the moment education it might have changed since things happening in europe have probably changed down but i think even currently education is the hardest hit in terms of cybersecurity and Isn't threats And Google offers us the best protection as far as we're concerned at City College Plymouth. And if you look into those particular attacks, they do come through some fairly obvious routes and emails, one of them. And the protection that we get from Google is second to none. Google's got the biggest 
reference to what's going on in the world right now in terms of threats to its technology. So we benefit from that. You can imagine this huge global tech giant. When they adapt their services and products, we benefit from that straight away. We don't have to wait for updates. We're not waiting for people in IT to upload things and put new software <laughs> My in. My favourite thing. It just happens. Yeah. And it's been the best move for City College Plymouth in terms of digital strategy. It's been the underpinning of where we're going with digital Okay, so that must have been quite a transformation because you're not a small college, you've got a lot of staff, a lot of students, a lot of kit. And I understand that helping you with that transition was Jamie Farnell-Smith, who's the Executive Chair of C-Learning and Director of Delling Cloud, who, if the technology is working, should be joining us by Zoom now. There he is! It's work! <laughs> wow! Jamie! Hello, Stuart, welcome! Mark. Stuart, Mark, good to see you. Hi. Thanks for letting me zoom in. No, it's great. So the technology works. This is great. So why did you support and how did you support the college through this transition? Okay, so there's two elements to that question. So why? Why did we support the college through this transition? Well, it's what we do. We support thousands of educators all over the world, really, in about 30 different countries last time I was counting. Now, if you ask why do we do that, I mean, to give you a personal perspective on that, Stuart, it's because it's what we believe in. It's who we are. Most of our team are from education. In my career, I've worked in university schools and colleges and been in roles similar to Mark's. And it's who we are. It's what we're passionate about. We believe that education is the most powerful tool we have to create a smarter and more sustainable world. That's the mission of the company. So that's the why in a sort of high level sense. In terms of what we did, I think by the very nature of what we do, because we're a top Google partner, and I think by the very nature of that, we tend to naturally end up working with some of the most innovative, progressive organizations in education globally. And Mark's organization is a classic example of that. So when I first got to know Jackie, the chief executive, and Mark, the chief digital transformation officer, and all the wider senior team, immediately I was in front of people who had a credible strategic vision for sustainable transformation and innovation in education. And I suppose from an employer's point of view, because you know we're a significant employer in terms of what we do, I saw an organization that was very much aligning to high growth progressive industry. I mean, Mark there mentioned a few key words that struck a chord with me around agility, building communities, for example, because that's essential in our business world. I mean, our team are based all over the world in several different countries. And if they couldn't build collaboration and communities online and using these technologies, then we wouldn't be very commercially successful. So I saw a college and a leadership team that was very much aligning with the future direction of high growth industry. So from my point of view as chairman, it's always very exciting to work with people who are sharing that journey and sharing that vision that you're on as well. So we're immensely proud to support such an inspirational college. And as Mark said, they're the very latest Google reference site. And I think the point about that is that it's not just a badge. It's not like just getting some award or something like that. It's actually recognition from one of the world's top, most successful companies that they see in the college and what everybody's achieved there. An organization that is really in the vanguard of progressive practice when it comes to sustainable innovation. They don't hand it out to anybody who's just achieved a certain milestone. They hand it to an organization that they think is able to maintain that progressive practice over a sustained period of time. There's very few organizations that receive it. In fact, I think there's only two I know of this year. And Mark is in one of those organizations. So there's a bit of a Silicon Coast movement going on down there on the South Coast, I think. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, congratulations. I had no idea it was such a high accolade. And obviously, that's important to the college. But what does it mean to the wider community and to the business community particularly? Why is it important? Okay, I guess there's a few things there, Stuart, to bear in mind. One is that we can show a real alternative for businesses in terms of what technology can do for you and it really doesn't matter on the size of the business because you're looking at probably one of the most scalable available technologies on the planet again think about that security aspect and the kind Mm -hmm. of the global offer that Google has and what they can offer us so in terms of businesses we already support small businesses with pockets of training around kind of specific digital skills and tools and it might be a first time a business might be going completely online with let's say their calendars and emails and basic inventory really simple things like that right through to more complex things about how they go online and start to look at selling products and what the kind of skills that you need with that google is an infrastructure it's dead simple For me, I've worked in colleges and I've worked in technology for a long time. And businesses and colleges and institutions were very, very reliant, I felt, on highly technical people that knew how grey boxes in colleges worked or inside their businesses Mm. worked and how they wrapped around and firewalls and security and blah, blah, blah. And rolling out and scaling technology was quite an expensive thing. But Google's kind of, it's made it very accessible to many people. For example, 
it wouldn't take you very, very long at all to have a Google domain for the chamber, for example, mm -hmm. and you could be issuing email accounts and looking after kind of cloud-based storage and being sure that all of your data was safe and secure in the cloud. You know, you might be a technical person, but it's not that difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the appeal. In terms of our community, again, it's about the programs that we offer and getting students, anybody that comes through our doors, they have a digital experience. So... Even if you're doing a highly practical subject like brick or plastering or working in the kitchens or whatever it is, everybody has a virtual classroom. They have virtual learning resources. They can access it 24-7. All of their marking and the majority of their work gets submitted in evidence in a digital format as well. You don't get to lose your homework. The, you know, the days of the dog get my homework is <laughs> unless your dog's a cybersecurity dog with a digital tail, it's not possible. Yeah. The 24-7 nature, the connectivity. One thing we have to tackle as a college is digital poverty. So yeah. not all students have access to no. devices. We work really hard to make sure that every student that comes to the college has access to device and if need be they also have access to 4g or a 5g device so they can get online as well yeah that's really important and you kind of preempted a little bit one of the questions i was going to have for you you talked about it being easy to use and actually you know i've started using google to share board documents so we've got a central drive and people can comment on them and Simple, you know right? well it was in the too difficult to do box to be honest and i'll come back to that but having done it i'm so glad I did. But I think historically, and we can use brand names, we're not the BBC. Historically, you're either someone who loves technology and thinks it's really powerful and you love playing the sort of the back end of technology, in which case you're a Microsoft fan, or you just want something to turn on and work and that's you become an Apple fan. So I've got an, you know, an Apple watch and an Apple phone and an Apple iPad, you know, all that sort of stuff, because I don't like the technology. I just want it to work. So where does Google fit in to that? I would say Google's closer to Apple than kind of the Microsoft offer, in my view, that is. There are people that are very loyal and wedded to their various platforms. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I was. I was a huge fan of what Microsoft did for technology and business and education in the 90s and early 2000s. But Google came along and really disrupted that. Mm. And you need that. You need that in education. You need that in technology because otherwise you'll be stuck with the same product and the same old, same old. I mean, at the college, we acknowledge and accept all of the other technologies. We're not saying that they don't exist and they don't no. matter. <laughs> they really do. But in terms of a solution that's supported the kind of work that we want to do in the way that we want to do it, and as Jamie said, that sustained innovation piece, that all students and all participants, whether you're an adult returning to education or whether you're straight out of school, whatever that means, you get a strong digital core through what it is you're doing. And you're learning these skills through your subject, through your passions and through the stuff that you want to do as a student. So, for example, our students are now really familiar with using collaborative documents, which is something that it's not unheard of to us now. It's quite common for us, but it's not what's happening across the UK, for example. How students can pull together reams of information and work collaborative to produce things like magazines or video footage or right. websites and collect evidence and do work in different ways that actually inspire learning you know the creation and the problem solving bit and that collaboration piece is so hugely important to what we do at the college because mm. we want students to come into the college and not just remember facts and how to pass exams that's great and if yeah. you need to do that's fine yeah. but you know come out with problem solving be collaborative be creative you know find those solutions be entrepreneurial how could you start your own business using this technology as well mm. and you know and there are great examples of people leaving the college and starting that very thing starting their journey into mm. business but having an understanding of what social media is and how you mm. exploit those technologies to get your foothold in that kind of first step towards business so there's plenty of that kind of stuff really and, and if you just think about the accessibility of it and the affordability it works really well for education mm. i mean it is the best option for any college or any university or any school most of plymouth schools for example use google and it's weird how fe sort of breaks down into it's probably more popular with microsoft but in my view, that is generally a decision that's made by people that are quite wedded to it rather than people that are yeah. quite innovative and explorative with what's out there. So that sort of leads me on to a question for Jamie, which I think you're the right person to ask this. I hope so. So I mentioned that I've started using Google. And it was a Google document, shared drive, just to make sure that the board can look at documents. I can securely share them without sending them by email. And they can open them and comment on them without having my email chain packed out. But it took, well, I don't mind name chain, Paul Burton in PB Media next door to me to show me how to start that process. And once he'd helped me set up the basic first folder, if you like, and how to upload one document, 
oh, I'm a fan. I'm there. I'm playing yeah. with it. It's easy. It's intuitive. So how do we yeah. get people over that first step where we get the friendly arm around the shoulder says, let me just show you how good this is? I think, Stuart, you raised so many really fundamental points. I mean, firstly, I think we're all afraid of things we've never seen before. We're all afraid of something that we haven't used before. That's just human nature. And in terms of evolution, it's what kept us alive in terms of evolution. So it's very natural for us all to be a little bit afraid of something we haven't tried before. But I think, as Mark was touching on just previously as well, the real power of technologies like Google, or for me, any technology, what we really want is something that's simple to use and makes our life better. Isn't that what we want from technology? Whether we're in a business or whether we're in a college or school or a university, we just want technology to do what we want it to do as easy as possible. Yeah. And I think that is where Google has a pretty much unrivaled kind of proposition. And that's why it's number one in education globally. It's about well over 200 million active monthly users now using the technology that's used at City College Plymouth. So it's number one globally. But there's also 6.5 million companies, some of the world's leading companies have all now shifted to Google, whether that's PwC, Pfizer, Roche, Airbus. I could go on. There's another 6.5 million of them. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about that, and I don't want to head into slightly controversial territory here about our age, because I'm of a certain age now myself. But if you look at the 1.4 billion Gmail users, for example, globally, the average age of them tends to be below 35. And if you look at the average age of, say, an alternative email provider that we all know of, we grew up with, well, there's about 400 million of those left, and they tend to be over the age of 45. So we have this interesting challenge don't we about we can see where the future is because obviously all those 1.4 billion people who are using gmail for example are younger than i am <laughs> and they're the future so i think they can't be under 20 surely i like you <laughs> if you'd like to feature on a future episode of in conversation with send an email to info at freshairstudios.com I think you've made the key point there, Stuart, with your question there, which was how do we change that? How do we give people the confidence and the skills and the ability to use the best technologies for us today? Now, for me, that's a combination of two things. If you happen to join a company like ours, well, obviously, you get the training and support and everything else as part of your training of joining the business. But I think this is where colleges like Mark's have such a fundamental role to play, because I know it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but I live and see it every single day. I work with people like Mark every single day. And I see exactly how they're transforming quite literally the life chances of the communities that they serve. So for anybody who might be an adult learner, for example, who happens to be within the proximity of City College Plymouth, or even they could take a course online from home through the technologies that the college has, you might be an adult learner. And I think there was a government report that came out not too long ago that said there's about 13 million adults in the workplace today who lack basic digital skills. Mm. Well, the best way they can get them is to get in touch with a college like Mark's that delivers outstanding provision mm. using technologies that are easy to use and you can access anywhere you happen to be. Mark mentioned that word agility earlier. Well, the technologies that the college has and it enables you to fit study around your busy, complex life. And I think you just need that training and support and help. And of course, there's nowhere better to get that than from a college. And I would encourage businesses in the region as well to absolutely engage with City College Plymouth because they are really an extraordinary resource in their locality, which is there to serve the business community as well as the wider public. And I think that's the place to get started. As you said, Stuart, you only need a few minutes of somebody saying, here's how you do this. And yeah. you go. How do we get rid of the big and scary thing? So let's say I decide the chamber, I want to take it to be a Google chamber. You know, I've got 10 members of staff and I want to reach a thousand businesses. Is it big and scary and expensive? Are I going to spend months and months of project management to try and get this to happen? Firstly, not big and scary at all. I mean, that's the whole power of Google is how easy it is to use. And in terms of cost and things like that, again, this is where Google has a very unusual offer because there's an entirely free version of Google, for example, that's available to you, which you could choose to use depending on who's using it and in what way. And then depending on who is using it, if you took advice from a top partner like ourselves, we would always give you objective advice and guidance on the best type of licensing model for you because Google also offers a range of paid subscriptions as well. That's what most businesses use, for example. And in fact, most educators have now moved to a paid version of Google as well, simply because of the world-leading cybersecurity functionality that's built into it, but also the teaching and learning functionality you get with Google's most powerful solution. And because it's also very, very cost-effective, it's a lot cheaper than alternatives. Yeah, the adoption is sort of quite, quite significant as well as the impact. So I think the thing I would say to anybody who's scared of making a change or scared of trying something new is welcome to the club. Everybody's scared of something they haven't tried before. So you're in a safe space. Don't worry yeah. about it. 
We're always learning as well, by the way. I learn as much from Mark as he probably does from anyone in my team. And it's about teamwork and a partnership and a collaboration. And that's the thing, again, that because of the technologies that Mark's college has and City College Plymouth has deployed, they're able to collaborate and support businesses in a very different way that, in my opinion, to use business term, gives them a competitive advantage because I can use the services of the college from anywhere I happen to be in the world very, very easily on whatever device I happen to be on. So they're using not just the world's greenest and most sustainable technology, by the way, but they're also using the most agile and platform agnostic technologies as well, which means that you can widen access and participation to a much wider range of stakeholders and members of the community that you serve. So they really are quite an extraordinary college. So that's led me on to the next bit. So two-part question for Mark. I mean, firstly, how easy is your job? Because it's that easy, right? You just turned on Google one day and it all worked. And secondly, what's the impact for business? Okay, so how easy is my job? That's an interesting question. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a terrible, awful question, but go on, try anyway. Well, the digital transformation strategy at the college, uh, the work that goes with that is part of my responsibility of at the college, along with teaching and learning and apprenticeships and opportunities and some other bits and pieces. So Jackie keeps me very busy, you'll be pleased to know, and you'd expect nothing less. In terms of how easy was it? Well, we had a foothold the teaching community at the college, I'd been working with them on Google prior to the digital transformation strategy. And we were seeing real benefits, we were seeing real engagement, and we were seeing a suite of tools. The intuitive bit, now you've nibbled off a little bit of your problem. How do I share these documents? How do I keep it safe? You've taken that tiny leap. What Google's very good at is making your intuition follow the next thing you want to tackle, because their approach to use their technology is very consistent. So what you've learned already is probably the beginning of kind of opening and expanding your horizons. In terms of the adoption of the technology, it wasn't 100% across the college. So in January 2020, just before the pandemic, Jackie asked myself and my colleague Paul Fanshaw to look at systems and processes, it was called, at the college. Mm. And we started doing all kinds of exercises around pain points, um, some really good stuff. So again, if any of your community wants to take that approach and find out what either their customers think of their technology or even their employees think of their technology, mm. most powerful exercise we undertook was that because we knew exactly where People were feeling like their productivity was being impacted, their well-being was being impacted, their frustration and all this kind of stuff. And then that gave us kind of a basis of which how do we start making some significant decisions that are going to have the longest lasting impact and get some quick wins as well. Little did we know that there was this flu symptom issue happening around the world at the time. People might have heard of it. Might have heard of it. And then came March. We had to make a decision. And our decision was, are we going to go for Google or not? Or are we going to look at Microsoft Teams and the Microsoft Mm. environment? We'd had so much benefit from using Google already, and I saw nothing in Teams that was going to give us anything back other than a new problem, because everybody would need to then be retrained to use the the new stuff. And I couldn't see the benefits either. I couldn't even see the value in that move. I mean, there's some great stuff in the Microsoft thing, but for us, Google was a better decision. So we decided Google was going to be our platform. It was going to support remote teaching in lockdown. And much like your problem that you had, how do you get the chamber online and how do you start you know, making that live kind of piece? And you had to do it. We had to do it as well, mm. but we had a distinct advantage that the base level of skill across the college was already very good. There were pockets of excellence. We could refer to that. We created a system called Google Champions, so people that were very good at Google skills, we signposted them, created a community of practice around that, put some training resources in place, and people were pretty much ready to go. Apart from the thing that I guess the hardest challenge for us at that time was our hardware strategy had moved away from portable devices to Uh, black boxes that sat on people's desks, (laughs) including the telephone, by the way. Oh, no. So you've got 650 staff, and every one of those got access to a telephone that's got a wire on it. And How very old-fashioned. And you press some numbers on it, and that's you the You didn't fu- turn the dial, then? You spin so it with your finger? We had some of those. We had some no. of those. No. <laughs> yeah, we had some of those. There might have been a novelty one. But anyway, we did have a small problem in that, well, a sizable problem. A big problem, problem, yeah. That we had this technology that wasn't agile. How could we send people home with these machines that would only work when they got plugged in by an Ethernet cable yep. into a server, into a secure network? and all of that stuff so our massive action to quote bill gates to give him some credit on this was an immediate response to a hardware problem that we had we just didn't have the devices so every portable device that we could get our hands on whether it was an ipad whether it was a tablet of some description with android on it all of our laptop inventory we even got laptops that were 
probably beyond their use and brought them back from the dead so that people could take these devices home and work, including mm. students and whatnot. Again, another thing that Google brought as an advantage to that was if you've got old technology, you can install Chrome onto it and it breathes new life into old technology because right. it doesn't need that bulky operating system right. that our two big operating system players outside of Google Chrome require. I mean, it's Linux as well, but that's another thing. So we were breathing life and we were giving devices to students to keep old laptops that we turned into Chromebooks just have it because to us as a business it run its useful life as what have you and we were able to hand that technology out so a big thing was around the hardware and luckily just prior to this we had partnered with Jamie at C-Learning and because they're a Google Premier partner they were able to source us a large number of Chromebooks fairly rapidly so that our students had access to devices so that was the good news story and and I won't even tell you that first month of the pandemic, we had a fire in our IT department that wiped out hundreds of devices as oh, well. God. So you can imagine the scene and the look on our IT staff's oh, face man. and everything else. Anyway, we overcame that. We got the right devices in the hands of the students, the people that mattered, and we carried on. So it's a combination of bringing the staff of the community on board. The harder to reach is the business community in the college. So the more administrative functions, the finance, the HR teams who are very wedded to what they do and how they do it. And we're still working with them. Their uptake of using Google technology is great now, Mm. and it's pretty consistent. We've got some diehards who need very specific things and that's okay and that will always happen you know and we work with partners that use different technologies as well so we have to be universal and flexible but our core technology is google first as Mm. a college that's been part of our strategy since then and it's paid dividends i have to say that's fantastic i've just got one more question then we must wrap up and this is i guess to both of you so the southwest has an amazing potential as a powerhouse of the blue green economy we're talking about sustainability regenerative power solutions marine autonomy you name it we're there with blue green how could google in less than a 20 minute answer how can google help that just some headlines that people may not be aware of with google technology so they are the world's first truly green cloud ecosystem if you like that Mm. businesses or educators can use they've been carbon neutral since 2007 they will be net zero by 2030 as of right now today they are the world's largest producer and consumer of entirely renewable energy and if you were to take for example the technologies that mark was just referring to chromebooks that they've deployed in a very progressive way again as is typical of city college plymouth they tend to want to be at the forefront of innovation with whatever they do so they deployed chromebooks now why does that relate to green and renewable energy well the chromebook as a bare minimum will use 48 percent less energy than any other comparable computing device it will typically last up to eight years has unrivaled return on investment but also that has an impact on landfill and the components that are used in the manufacturing and then eventually the recycling process because it means that you are getting about two and a half times more use in terms of time out of that device Mm -hmm. over eight years compared to a typical laptop which might last about three and a half years at best they're also made from far less components and they're designed to be recycled as well and they use some very advanced artificial intelligence to maximize battery life and other things as well so whichever aspect of the college's technology ecosystem you look at google have world-leading credentials i could talk a lot lot more about it but i think that just as a bare minimum the fact they're using carbon neutral cloud technology in the way that they are and that they've deployed Chromebooks in the way they have put some right in the vanguard of progressive practice mm-hmm. in both industry and in education, actually. Yeah, I guess in terms of then the application and the use of that technology yes, in this exactly. kind of green and blue economy is if you think about all of the things you said, the agility, the platform agnostic nature of Google, yeah. the collaborative nature of Google. So if we're going to work as a Southwest ecosystem and really reaping the benefits of what that means in terms of preserving what goes on under the water, how the technology works both under and over the water. Mm. Think about what Google's brought to us in terms of maps and that kind of data that it can bring to us. It has excellent cloud warehousing in terms of storage and data security as well. Again, second to none. They're the best in the world, world world-leading technology available. And I guess, unlike a lot of the other products that we talk about, Google has the unusual ability to customise what it is. Mm. So some of my super Google brains now at the college are doing Google scripting. They're writing Google code straight into the product so if the product doesn't do what you want it to do and you want it to do something specific maybe it's something around geolocation or kind of artificial intelligence or data gathering or whatever that is you can actually hack if you like google to the point where you customize its spreadsheet facility or its data kind of gathering facilities to do what you want it to do but in a safe way in not a safe like the way. open source system no, completely safe and you can connect this stuff together and it all sits within your domain 
And this is the beauty of it. So your security settings, you know, your accounts that you give out on your terms, you share your information in only the way that you want it shared. We're doing some bonkers things with Google Apps <laughs> scripting. And we've got a course running at the college right now. This guy, one of our lecturers is a fanatical person when it comes to Google Apps script, because as far as he's concerned, he's now got all of the power possible in terms of you know creating new ways of working, creating automations, harvesting information. Yeah, so we've got a range of staff now who are starting to use Google in a way that I don't see in many of the colleges at the moment either. It's Google Apps script thing, I think, is something that we as a college will certainly be developing, but also sharing with our community. You know, so the schools in Plymouth and, we're, and the businesses, the businesses, etc. We're aiming to have a Google symposium in the new year, so more to come on that. We haven't pinned down a date yet, but I'm hoping some time in January. And that will be a mixture of educators, businesses, curious people, people wanting to go on programs, courses, sharing best practice, but also bringing together some of the best contemporary thinkers in that kind of business education pedagogy space. Well, that's fantastic. I'm a convert already. And it's funny because I sort of intimated at the start, I get very frustrated when technology doesn't simply do what I want it to do. So I'm glad you said that, Jamie. And in fact, I saw on social media a post, you've probably seen it, saying the band Rage Against the Machine never said what machine they were angry about, but I'm pretty sure it was a printer. You know, and I think we've all had that frustration with technology when it's not doing oh, we, what we, we want and some- reprogram it with an axe, you know, that sort of thing. Hey, I'm a convert. We're going to have to wrap it up, but I'm really grateful you took the time. Jamie, Farnell Smith, thank you so much for joining us. And to Mark, you know, congratulations to the college. Huge thank accolade. Thank you. Please keep us posted. Let's see how we can work with you in the business community. And thanks both for keeping us entertained and informed. Thank you. Very happy to be here. If you're not already a Chamber member and you'd like to join, membership starts from as little as £245 per annum plus VAT. Your business can gain yearly benefits in excess of £2,200. Check out the membership section at devonchamber.co.uk. Be part of something bigger and join today to connect, grow and succeed with the Devon and Plymouth Chamber. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.